Hello and welcome to the Courage to Be podcast, where we explore how to raise your game, lean into discomfort and have more impact and purpose. I am your host, Sinead Millard. Welcome back to this week's episode where I speak with Elizabeth Cairns, the author of The Empowered Entrepreneur. Elizabeth is a coach who works with creative individuals who have a strong desire to make an impact in the world. I myself have worked very closely with Elizabeth, so my hope and intention for today's episode is that you just get that opportunity to really experience Elizabeth's capacity to hold space, to support, to nurture to really inspire through her wonderful articulation of the many insights that Elizabeth has to share. We cover many topics from becoming a mother, stepping into a new way of being, um, right through to mothering and supporting ourselves along the way. Um, Elizabeth talks about self-acceptance, holding people in the highest regard. We delve deeply into the topic of voice and the courage to use your voice. And Elizabeth offers up some very practical um, and useful strategies to using her voice in a far more meaningful and impactful way. We talk to acting in line with our values and having that pulling rather than pushing effect when we make decisions and choices that are in line with our values. Elizabeth actually talks about possibility filled energy. We hear about her experience of writing um, the book, The Empowered Entrepreneur, and her capacity to engage with the creative process and to somewhat disengage from the outcome. And it's interesting, Elizabeth really draws on her intention and the importance of the book being authentic and what she had to do to ensure that happened. Welcome to the Courage to Be podcast, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. I'm going to take advantage here of the fact that um, you're probably more au fait with the Courage to Be than I am. (laughs) So I'm jumping straight in. Um, Where have you had to have the most courage in your life to date? Oh, (laughs) wow. Just hit me with a hammer. (laughs) Um, Okay, where have I... My life to date... I have no idea. So I'm just going to come with the first thing that pops into my head, which is having my daughter, my Mm. first child. Seems Um, to be the theme today. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was terrifying. Mm. It was not the act of having the baby. That was fine. Um, But the becoming a mother and um, stepping into a completely new way of being, um, that was really challenging. And when you look back at that and think about perhaps pre and post mm. becoming a mother, yeah. how do you think it has impacted your character, so mm. to speak? Great question. Um, so ironically, a lot of my work before I had children was around mothering. Um, I used to do, and I still do, um, a lot of work with on retreat with people in a kind of supportive, nurturing capacity. And, and reflecting on that work... Um, after I had children, I realized that a lot of it was around mothering because there were a lot of people that came that um, hadn't fully... The reason they were struggling with whatever it was they, they'd come on retreat to explore or discover um, 
was that they hadn't fully stepped into being a grown-up, if you like, or being an adult and doing adulting very well. And I think that's true of a lot of people. You know, you can be walking around at 45 and not really be a grown-up. Um, and I was interested in what gets in the way of our ability to do that. And one of the key things for me, I think, is is the ability to mother ourselves, to nurture ourselves, to give ourselves the appropriate space and support. And quite often that can be missing for, for a lot of us in growing up. You know, quite often people don't have a mother figure that is an archetypal mother figure. And by that, I mean someone who's able to nurture, someone who's able to put you first, someone who's able to be strong enough to hold all of the emotional stuff that comes up for people and, and not bring themselves into it to hold that space for somebody. And that takes quite a lot of work. Um, and that's a lot of what my work was before I had children, was holding that space for people so that they could have their emotions, so that they could have their, um, they could work through things, so that they could um, process, so that they could be accepted for who they are at whatever stage of their journey was. And my word for that was mothering. Um, and it wasn't about, you know, feeding them cake and tea, although we did do that too. <coughs> but it was more about having the capacity to hold anything that came up and knowing what to do with it from the point of view of holding people in the highest regard. Um, and the irony is, is I find that incredibly hard to do for my children. Mm. <laughs> you know, I find that much easier to do for other adults and, and for myself than I do for my kids. So that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, and in terms of how I've shifted or how it's informed my personality or, or the way I am afterwards, um, it gave me... It, it it's taken me to the places of self-loathing that I never really thought were possible. <laughs> you know, I did a lot of self-loathing when I was a teenager and, you know, the usual existential angst that you have. Um, but motherhood, I think if you really engage with it, because you can be a mother and not really engage with it, I think, um, at, a, at a level that rocks you to your core, um, it's, it's incredibly painful and traumatic, you know, because you realise just what a disaster area you are a lot of the time. You know, it was fine for the first few years with my daughter. I just had one child and I was, um, smug isn't the right word, but I, I felt very mm. confident in my mothering. Um, I didn't seem to have this kind of anguish over what I should do with my child. We spent a lot of time just being together and I could respond to her and I could um, intuitively mother. And I've actually found that part of motherhood very easy. But the the looking at your um, at who you are as a person and one of the things I think children really do for you is they they help you mind the gap that's not my expression I've borrowed that from someone else and I can't remember who but they they help you mind the gap between who you profess to be or who you say you are and who you actually are in terms of your behavior um, and that's a challenge you know because you're constantly having to live up to who these amazing people think you are or want you to be and also who you profess to be while you're around them mm. um, because they spot it when you're not and they call you out on it what's coming up for me as you're saying this as well is understanding how some of that work you did which was you referred to as mothering before having kids with mm. these clients how has that influenced your current work mm. which maybe that will also be an opportunity for you to introduce to the audience kind of the type of clients you work mm. with how's it influenced my current work um well my work has always been a kind of evolving 
feast and I kind of it's kind of been evolving as to um, where my edge is and who the clients I'm attracted to and who are attracted to me um, and at the moment I tend to work with <clears throat> creative individuals who have a strong desire to have an impact in the world they want to do something of meaning of purpose mm. um, they may be change makers they may be um, very humble very quiet people just living slowly and and bearing witness to what that life can look like but they are people who want to have an impact um, and a very specific one and quite often that will have um, an empowering bent to it or an environmental bent because I'm very passionate about that um, and in terms of how that's changed or informed the work I don't know really um, I think it has just the act of having the children there and realising that my time away from them is incredibly um, I was going to say precious but that sounds wrong <laughs> I have limited time away from them yeah. and therefore any time I spend away and because I, because I want to spend most of my time with them any time I spend away from them has to count mm. so from that point of view um, I don't flim flam about nearly half as much as I did before I don't do things just for the sake of doing I did a lot of play and experimentation in my work before and I would very happily um, just try mm. things and I think having lots of years of doing that has enabled me to get a sense of what may work and what might not work so there is a little bit less of that but I think I'm much more focused with my time um, because every moment really counts I get a shit lot more done excuse the expression this is mm. not a Disney podcast it's it's fine. Um, <laughs> Michael Sarah yes. is fun here. <laughs> yeah, we, oh, of course yes dear Michael we're giving these coaches a bad name aren't we <laughs> just come on and they're, they're swearing everybody else is perfectly mild-mannered it must be because um, i'm an irish yeah exactly just yes come on. That. Um, yeah so i think that's probably had the biggest impact actually mm. in effectiveness and focus because um before if someone had said come for a coffee i'd go yeah yeah i'll come for a coffee but now it's like every moment really is accounted for mm. so it has to count and it has to have impact something i've been thinking about more and I think it's also tied into the fact that as my little one gets older and is more familiar with kind of what I'm... She's not familiar with what I do at all. She <laughs> told me the other day that I work in rugby. Um, <laughs> and she's like, and you have four jobs. So I was like, you're probably right in some ways, but not the rugby. Um, but I guess I'm having this desire more and more to kind of impact and succeed and do well so mm -hmm. that I can be a role model is that something you think about actively or it is you know but in a very different way mm. so um because how I view success is is probably a little different from a standard stereotype I suppose well actually that's not true at all everybody views success differently but one of the questions I ask people is what is success mm. to you um, so I think it is, it is important to me that my children see the embodiment of somebody who lives by their values, lives by what's important to them. And for me, the values of um, self-awareness and honesty and kindness and compassion trump everything else. Um, and that's where the rubber meets the road for me because actually it's very easy for me to be driven or successful in my work um, 
and it's much harder for me to be kind. Um, so that's that's where the edge is. Um, I think what I want my daughter to see particularly is that the world doesn't define who she is or who she wants to be by nature of her gender or um, by nature of her education or by nature of or her circumstance that she can choose that so I think that is something in in terms of my work that's something I really want to show the kids um, that they can do whatever they want to do if they put their mind to it and if they put their heart to it more importantly um, because the I mean we, we've deliberately chosen to home educate our kids to kind of take them out of that driving system that limits those things that people define success by you know success in your career is such a small window um of what success is to me yeah and actually as you say that in terms of homeschooling I mm. mean as a mum that's a massive courageous act you know so that you know I think yeah. that I guess because we we I think it's becoming more um known that the educational system um, is limited in terms of its capacity to serve our children kind of mm. wholly um, but then there's the next level, which is I'm choosing not to engage with it. Yeah, I think in some respects, um, and, and the, first, the, the challenging thing is you don't know, you don't know whether you're completely screwing up your kids <laughs> yeah. or not. You know, there's just we no, have to give them something no to gauge. go to therapy yes, about. Exactly, <laughs> there'll be another, <laughs> that is inevitable. Um, yeah, I think it's funny. So I courageous for me actually would probably be to do the school run every day and turn up at the school dates and deal school gates and deal with all that stuff that would be courage because I would find that incredibly hard um and I think when you're in alignment with what's important to you it doesn't take as much courage if I'm honest mm. um it's very easy for me to um to know that home education is right for our family. And that's not that educa the education system is wrong. It's perfectly right mm. for lots of families. Um, but that's only available to us because of the way that we've chosen to structure our life and our work and, mm. and to make that accessible. But because it's, because it's important. Um, I think... What do I think? I think too many things about home ed. It's such a challenging and controversial subject. The more... The more courageous thing, actually, is talking to people about it. And that's always an interesting <clears throat> one that I find. Mm. I think whether it's education, whether it's birthing, home mm. birth, hospital birth, whatever yeah. type of birth, that they're emotionally fueled topics. Mm. Um, and, and, and I guess this brings us to a lovely topic of voice, mm. right, which you speak about, you know, wonderfully and which we've spoken about on the show here. Um, and that is like the courage to use our voice, but also, I guess, the courage to not use our voice at yeah. points in time. So I guess, um, yeah, I mean, I think this has just raised the topic of voice mm. and how you have perhaps come up against barriers or um, roadblocks mm. whereby you felt like you couldn't fully express yourself yeah. in a particular area. Yeah, it's interesting because in my work, I don't have that so much because I do find it easy mm. um and I've always really enjoyed public speaking and I've always really enjoyed those forums and which is one of the reasons I went into kind of coaching mm. as well so coaching people to be able to step into those scenarios and use their voice um <clears throat> where I find it challenging and I and when I'm public speaking or if I'm uh in my work context it's very easy isn't it to 
come across as reasonable and measured and controlled. But where I find it most challenging is if I'm talking about subjects like um, the environment that I'm really passionate about. And I do a lot of outreach in my kind of environmental campaigning work. And the the ability to... Um, like you say, not use my voice to know to know when it's appropriate is a challenge. To know when um, <clears throat> when you've said too much, when you are going to to know what am I trying to say? No, this is ironic because normally I was just about to say normally when I speak it's easy to be articulate. <laughs> I'm fumbling <laughs> over my words, um, but I find that when a subject is very emotive or I'm particularly passionate about it the ability to not take it personally or the ability to be more measured or the ability to let the outcome go which I think is essential to a lot of communication is to be able to communicate without having a fixed um, idea of how it should go um, is much more challenging for me so I find that in conversations with my family it's much more challenging to talk about the environment, for example, with my family, um, or to talk about childbirth options with a pregnant mum. I had the wonderful privilege of being my cousin's birthing partner recently, mm, yes. and it was a really beautiful experience. And it's something I'm very passionate about because um, I had a home birth myself with both my two children, um, and I know that she really wanted a home birth with her third daughter. Um, and it's a difficult thing to talk about because there's so much um, guilt and trauma and um, expectation tied up with mothering and particularly birthing that if you have a positive in inverted commas birth story it's hard to share it actually sometimes because it triggers a lot of people and finding ways to share that compassionately is challenging yeah. um, and the same with the environmental stuff everybody feels guilty about the fact that by our very nature of being humans on this planet we're part of the problem we're part of the environmental crisis how do you broach subjects like that in a way that engage people um and empower people and um, don't leave them feeling disempowered with guilt um, and we've kind of gone off on a huge tangent no I think here, this is really important you've you've because it, taking it back to voice right mm. and if we think about our audience so there's something in what you're saying also as it relates to influence and positive mm. influence yeah. right and I guess the ownership upon us to think about the best ways in which we can influence and in which we can use our voice and something that I'm thinking about as well is as soon as we we anybody makes another person feel ashamed yeah. we we have failed to empower them to do any good yeah. right and yeah. this is something really interesting actually mm. I think it also I was listening to Russell Brand and Renee Brown speak this morning um, and they talked about this at a very kind of high political level gosh mm. some of it was like whoa I needed to like I was listening to it on speed and I was like whoa um, I'm not on speed. <laughs> we'll just retract that for this. <laughs> the podcast was on fast play. Um, and, and this is something that, so again, it's, I guess if we take it to a, an ownership level, mm. so to speak, it's, mm. I guess, or a challenge. And I'd love to hear from you on this is how do we inspire change mm. in a way that fee people don't feel like they're broken yeah. or that they're ashamed of yeah. their actions? So for me, the key to that is um, acceptance. 
and I think that's you know coming back full circle to talking about you know the work and the holding space is um, if you're really going to hold space for somebody you have to acknowledge the fact that they are whole as they are and they don't need to change and they have all the resources and I think for me that's fundamental to coaching so I think there's that there's the underpinning of full acceptance of somebody of their views of their perspective of their history of their narrative all of that um, and that that is as valid as everybody else's perspective um, and there's hope um, it's interesting because one of the biggest challenges for me in this past year um, has been in my engaging with the work with Extinction Rebellion and I resisted despite being an environmental campaigner for years and years I resisted 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 coming on board with XR for a long time um, mainly because I fundamentally disagreed with the um, the state of grief actually that it induces not not that XR induces but that the, the telling of the truth which is one of the fundamental for those of you who aren't familiar with extinction rebellion there, there are three demands of extinction rebellion and the first thing is to tell the truth specifically about the environment and what's happening with the environment and the truth is actually in the environmental terms very hard to hear and it's very hard to hold um, and all what I've noticed in the messages that I've been putting out um, not necessarily in my work there's a certain theme and a process to the way I communicate messages through the empowered entrepreneur or through my work they they're always empowering they're always hopeful um oh I like to hope they are um they're always practical and they they kind of speak to this sense of opening the heart which I think really is fundamental to um galvanizing people is kind of speaking to the heart and getting people to move in that way and what I've noticed when I've been speaking on behalf of Extinction Rebellion or for some of the environmental campaigning is that it's not always possible to do that. It's not always possible to say there is hope because there are genuinely times where I felt utterly hopeless, utterly. Um, and truth has become the overriding value there, truth and honesty, and it's, it's about saying things just very clearly and very plainly stating the facts for example of, of mm -hmm. what the nature of the vast situation is in terms of environmental crisis and creating the space to hold and to process that um, because I think for a lot of people there is that the more meaningful the more powerful a piece of work is the more space you have to create to work through the stages of processing if you like before you can get to action um, and in a lot of respects it, it feels like a counter to the courage to be to the kind of start before you're ready and it's not it's it has to work in combination so for me there's an acknowledgement that we will never feel ready for example to tackle this environmental crisis we won't and if yeah. we if we navel gaze forever and you know sit around grieving forever we'll never get anything done so we will need to start before we're ready um, but equally, there, there is this kind of flow for me of recognising when something is big work that it takes time to process and creating pockets of space within that to do that process. So I think to come back to your question of, you know, how do we galvanise people to change is starting from a place of acceptance, giving people hope, um, engaging the heart 
and in engaging the heart particularly with big things there might be some grief there and there might be some stuff to work through and there might be some stuff to process and that can be on any scale it doesn't have to be the huge scale of environmental crisis it can be you know um I was never supposed to work. That could be a belief that's mm. in there that needs to be worked through. Mm. Or women in my family do this, or mm. men in my family do this. You know, it doesn't matter what the nature of the thing is we need mm. to process. Um, so I think there has to be some active engagement with whatever narrative comes up, rather mm. than just shoving it under the carpet and getting on with it. Because the challenge with um, not actively engaging with the narrative that comes up is the process of action is not sustainable. Completing the book, The Empowered Entrepreneur, how, mm. how has that impacted you? Um, well, in a number of ways now, whenever I have to write a 3,000 word essay or a piece, it feels like nothing, which is great. So from that point of view, when you've written 80,000 words, it's like everything else. Is, um, I think it was the act of doing it and that process of engaging with the muse that had the most power for me. Because once I'd written the book, I let it go. You know, it's kind of, it's out there. It has its own life. It does its own thing. I'm not attached to whether it sells a million copies or, you know, that none of that really matters. Um, it was important to me that it was an authentic book um, and that engagement with the muse is what mattered. Yeah, that's lovely. And I think it's something that is not very easily done. And I think I, well, for me certainly is to engage in the process, enjoy that the mm. creative process and detach from the outcome to a certain yeah. degree. I mean, it sounds like you've done that quite naturally there and quite kind of... Yeah, I think um, afterwards I was able to detach from the outcome. And in terms of getting it done, there was a very definite um, project experiment kind of process going on there in, in relation to the courage to be. And, and in particular, um, and, and linking it back to not... To, to the ability to use your voice so the book was a was an expression you know it's another way to use my voice and what I very deliberately didn't do through that process was read anybody else's books or listen to anybody mm. else's podcasts or look at follow any other coaches or anyone else on Instagram because inevitably what I would have found is everybody's saying the same stuff mm. um, and it's very easy to lose connection with your own voice if you worry too much about what everyone else mm. is saying. Yeah, I think this is brilliant and it takes me straight to the question of why do you think it's important for us to have a voice? Because there is only ever going to be your way of seeing the world that is... Um, that is a unique perspective mm. and I believe that everybody is uniquely placed in their in their chronology of their life and in their circumstance to have certain experience and to reach certain people and they are the only people that can do that and that if they tap into their authentic message that's based on their experience and their life and find the unique audience that they are meant to reach, then they are the only people that can do that. And I think it's a natural part of um, human evolution and of creative evolution to, to learn, to grow, and then to share and to be of service. And for me, um, using our voice is an act of service. It, it's a responsibility. It's a responsibility to pass it on. It's in uh, in the process of becoming it's an important part of becoming because when we use our voice we hear our voice 
when we express to other people we learn what's important to us you know when I think about how I use my voice differently when I was a teenager if I was environmentally campaigning as a teenager for example I was a lot more shouty than I am now you know I used my voice a lot Mm. um, and I used it in ways that had impact and sometimes didn't have the impact that I wanted and I had to reflect and redirect and learn and I got to by hearing myself using my voice I got to know what I was most passionate about mm-hmm. and it's only in that act of reflection after using do we realize you know what do we stand for what will we fall for what what's important to us and at the end of the day I think in that process that's what life's about isn't it like what are we here for what, what what's the impact what's the legacy we want to leave what's the what's the purpose what's life about and I think using your voice is fundamental to that um, and I think it it enables you to in the standing for something you're not always going to be popular and that's okay as well what would you say to listeners out there who perhaps feel like I love everything that I'm hearing Elizabeth say. Like, I want to have a voice, but deep down, they really just don't know where to start mm. or whether or not they have a point of view or whether yeah. it matters. Or even if I wanted to have a voice mm. today, where would I even begin? Yeah. I suppose everybody has a voice already, mm. so that's a given. Um, and I think it's about understanding what level or what scale of impact you want to have and what your media is as well, what your forum is for using your voice. Um, because you can use your voice in watercolour as much as you can use your voice in the boardroom. Um, so I think it's mm. experimenting with what does my, um, you know, for me obviously I'm talking about the literal voice, the spoken word or the written word. Um, so it's thinking about where do I already use my voice? Um, where do I find I have an opinion that comes easily and comes naturally to me? Um, what do I find I talk about? What do I find annoys me? Like, if I'm, I do a lot of work with people trying to discover what they want their shape of their business to be, or even what they want the focus of their business to be. And, and quite often we start with what drives you nuts. Mm. You know, what drives you nuts in your in your industry, or what drives you nuts in the world. Um, what do you have of an opinion about already? Um, because most of us do. There aren't many people there that don't have an opinion yeah. about anything. And sometimes it's easy to assume that everybody has that same yeah. urge to talk about a particular topic. But if it's yeah, yeah. It's what do you rant about on social media? Mm. Where do you comment? What you know? Where are you already engaged? And then exploring. Well, what would the next level of that look like? Maybe how could I? Um, looking at the looking at the structure of how you use your voice so um am i using it but um withholding am i using it not withholding but not having much impact mm-hmm. um you know kind of assessing the effect to the yeah. efficacy of the way that you're using your voice at the moment am i speaking and not being heard or am i being heard but not being understood you know what what's what's the nature of my voice at the moment and then setting an intention about what, how do I want to shape my voice in the future? Do I need to have more impact? Do I need to have more visibility? Do I need to have more influence? Do I need to speak more often? Do I need to have more confidence? You know, there'll be any number of ways that we can, for want of a better word, improve how we use our voice. Mm. Um, so getting a clear intention about that and then just play you know you yeah. and I talk about this a lot don't we just play yeah, yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be huge um, for a lot of people just 
asking a client for feedback yeah or or a manager for feedback is huge mm. you know just saying how did i do yeah and then like waiting <laughs> for I've, had, I've had clients like who have an urge to write a blog but are mm. almost even afraid to say it they've started off just sharing it with their husband yeah. or their best friend yeah. or a guest it's just engaging in the process yeah. i mean i think for things like um the creative process of blogging or of speaking you just do it mm. like there's no there's there's no way to get better at writing than writing there's no way to get better at podcasting than podcasting there's no way to get better at talking and listening to people that is going to be the quote from today's episode you know you just have to there is no way you just have to do it yeah I think this takes us before we we wrap up I'm going to a little bit of a rapid fire round I want to ask you the failure that you most cherish Oh my god! <laughs> it's too many. It's like it's not like I can't think of failures. There's just too many. <laughs> um, oh, I keep dodging that one, so I'm going to come back to it. Um, the failure that I most cherish was um, being told by a man I most admired that he didn't want me to work for him anymore. Yeah, that was epic. So, um, but back in my early twenties, I left corporate um, for various reasons and decided to have a year of yes, where I said yes to every opportunity that came up because I didn't know what shape my business should take. I didn't know what my skill set was, so I just said yes and did everything. Um, and the thing that enabled me to leave corporate was very serendipitous. Um, and I decided, literally on a Wednesday worked out how much money I needed to be able to pay the mortgage and just survive and said right as long as I can find that I will quit on the Thursday I got a phone call from this guy um, who was uh, a trainer an incredibly proficient amazing brilliant man Um, and he said oh I'm looking for somebody to come and work with me in a kind of support role um, but I can only pay X a month. I don't suppose you know anybody because he was somebody that had trained me. And I said, oh, yeah, me. I probably would have given a recommendation <laughs> to somebody else. Yeah, well, normally I would have done, but as I decided the day before to quit, because um, he said, well, I didn't mean you because it's a really, you know, it's not a very, it's not, it's nothing like the job you're currently doing. It doesn't pay. I said, and the figure that he gave me was the exact figure I'd written down the day before. So I was like, no, no, this is my job. So I took the job. Um, and he said, well, I need to make it more worth your while. So I'll, you can come and, and um, watch me train people um, and watch me facilitate and I'll train you. And it was the most incredible gift being able to do that for maybe two years, two and a half years. Um, and in the passion that I had for the training and the development, I dropped some of the balls of the other job that I needed to be doing really well and had lost, lost sight of the importance of that. And rightly so, he said, look, you're not doing your job. <laughs> I was like, okay, he said, you're a great trainer, but actually I employed you to do this. And I went, oh shit, yeah, okay. Um, and it taught me a lot of things. It taught me that I have a passion for training and people development, and it enabled me to work with one of the most brilliant men I've ever met and, and worked with. Um, but it also taught me not to drop the ball mm. and to honor a commitment properly. Um, and also the shame I felt of letting this person down was immense. And I thought, wow, you know, A, I never want to do that again. Um, but also it taught me how to hold 
that that shame and that um, emotion um, and not get consumed by it and to be able to move on from it and because the reflexive response was just to contract back and therefore not take any more risk mm. um, and thankfully in the years of working with him and alongside him he taught me that the opposite is actually true that, that when you feel that you need to open your heart just a little bit more and go out and expand and seek more opportunities and learn from that process so oh. I think that yeah that's so interesting and in how you articulated it because it's almost like the learning must be there the reflection the learning like but it's and is it possible to ever move through a failure and, and move through it without shame perhaps not mm. but I guess it's it's like you were you were doing the reflection you were doing the learning mm. you know, is there is there a desire to be able to kind of strip all shame away from mm. failure or do you think that's kind of an impossible task I think it depends on your journey I think for those most of us um it's probably impossible due to the parenting we've had you know it's yeah. certainly going to be impossible for my kids <laughs> and, and I guess it's, it's as long as that shame doesn't hold you in that space yeah. for too long yeah it's, it's, and I think yeah. that's where to bring it full circle that's where the mothering piece comes back mm. because you're being a true mother to yourself you can release the shame because shame's only there if you have an expectation that's not met and you're made to feel bad about that expectation mm. whereas if you just hold that person in full acceptance of the circumstance the shame disappears mm. um so i think the the anecdote to shame that we can give ourselves is the acceptance of the fact that we're all children at every point on the journey mm. and that we are worthy of love and belonging and respect and and yeah, open-hearted appreciation of you're all so yeah. It's incredibly nurturing, and mm. I guess that is the nurturing that we that we need. I feel like there's all, every time I, there's always like this. There's these opposites in 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 mm. the world at the moment, which is like kind of you know experiment, go test, learn, and then there's this beautiful, which I think you hold so so mm. perfectly, is this nurturing that we all need, mm. and we all need to be that for ourselves. I think I, I see it as the divine feminine, but obviously mm. that might be slightly too weird shit for your okay. audience. But it's it's the masculine yeah. feminine drivers, isn't it? Mm. And I think in particularly in business in work. We need to know whether we're male or female. We need to be able to hold both of those aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is the go-getting, um, driving, striving energy. Just do it. Start before you're ready. It's a very masculine trait. Mm. And that is only made sustainable and possible by the ability to hold and create space. It's almost like um, the chalice underneath mm. it. The foundation of it has to be this body of um, compassion, the mindset of... Um, experimentation and failure and growth and and nurturing is the only thing that will sustain that because without that piece without the space and the processing and the reflection and the winter time uh, we just hit burnout yeah it's too much yeah Yeah. 2020 the next decade even um, Mm. where do you need to lean into your edge more is that something that you're thinking about what's coming up for you Um, yeah it feels like a cult it is definitely um a time of more impact even more impact um and of pulling everything together in a very cohesive direction um for me the focus you know thankfully i'm very lucky that that my work is abundant and thankfully always has been Mm -hmm. um and and i love and adore it 
and my focus really is about having the impact in the environmental arena that I want to have this year and using all of my skills and training and development to facilitate the empowerment in in other people around me to meet this crisis that we have with um, open-hearted compassion for self but also much needed action and commitment for change I think that takes us to a lovely place thank you so much for joining me sorry for the waffle fix (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for listening If there's something that you've heard in this episode that has resonated with you, or perhaps you think it could benefit someone else, then please do share this link or start the conversation. If you haven't done so already, click on the subscribe button in your listening app. And as always, I really value your feedback. So please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And for more information, full show notes, links and resources, you can pop over to my website, SineadMillard.com. See you next time back here on The Courage To Be.